I'd like to begin tonight's Dharma talk with a short Zen story. In this there is a soldier who was practicing Zen rather intently and when he meditated it was said that the stillness was so profound that the house itself grew silent and the mice and even the crickets were quiet. When his wife mentioned this to him he said, well this won't do, I'll have to try even harder. So he gathered his attention and as his meditation deepened and opened the mice began to play happily around him, even jumping on his clothes as he sat, serene and joyful. We're going to be taking these next weeks to explore what in Buddhist terms is the Brahma-viharas, which means the divine abodes, and it's really the different expressions of awakened heart-mind the underlying understanding that our practice is not for the sake of emptying our minds or dissolving into pure nothingness. If you've noticed, minds don't really empty, do they? (laughs) Right? Rather, if there's such a thing as a purpose, it's awakening, and it's the awakening of heart-mind. It's the awakening of all parts of our being, so that we're not coming into stillness so as to be necessarily nothing, but rather this pregnancy or fertility of wakefulness that's quite connected with all parts of our being and all parts of life. The Brahma-viharas. Now, it's said in one of the early stories of the Buddha that a Hindu approached him and asked him what it would take when he died for him to return to Brahma. And Brahma is really kind of the source, the source of of life, of love, and so on, to the essence of being. And it was at that time that the Buddha first talked of the Brahma-viharas. He said, to dwell with Brahma, you need to practice these source practices. And they are the practices of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Brahma-vihara, divine abode. So these are the practices that the Buddha kind of taught hand-in-hand with mindfulness, with just pure mindfulness, these practices of awakening. And we'll begin this week with loving-kindness. And whether it's the first time you've formally been introduced to loving-kindness or you've been doing it for lifetimes, it doesn't matter because it's really the heart of our practice to come back again and again to this place of care that is uh, really the meaning of loving-kindness. Another meaning, which I like a whole lot, for the Pali word of metta is friendship or friendliness. You could just as well think of this as a practice of becoming profoundly friendly with life unconditionally friendly. And imagine that. Just imagine a life where in all aspects there was a quality of friendliness, not necessarily enjoying or liking, not without aversion, but a deep kind of willingness to include as part of our being all that we encounter all experience. 
for me the most striking thing about all the Buddhist practices of the heart is that when we talk about loving kindness or metta we're not talking about some abstraction in fact the only way to practice this stuff is in the most immediate particular way it has to be with whoever you're going home to tonight or whatever animals are in your house or whatever plants are there or if no one's there no plants no animals no one whatever you're noticing internally it's an immediate alive and particular practice of relating with care so even though in the metta practice you'll notice that we land up with may all beings be happy the only way to be genuinely connected with that sense is if you've practiced the the immediacy of a quality of care towards your own sorrows and loneliness and towards the grumpiness of somebody that you're around and on and on, the particulars. A couple of weeks ago I was teaching out at Spirit Rock for a day long and I was set, we were set up to have three of us teach uh, and one of the women last minute called me and said, you know, this seems like the most incredible thing to do because it was a day on heart meditations and you know just what I need in my life right now is to you know be leading and participating in this kind of energy because those of you that were here for a day long on it some weeks ago know it's quite opening she said but I don't know why but I can't do it I can't come and I'm tired and I kind of need to just lay back and I'm just going to honor that and since there were two of us already teaching we said go for it or don't go for anything just be there you know and and we went on and taught and it turns out we got a message uh, that next night and instead of coming to teach she had stayed home and rested and then she went to visit her mom who had been in a coma for six weeks she'd been in an accident and when she got in she sat down next to her mother uh, and this is a relationship that's been conflictual over the decades and for the first time in those six weeks her mom opened her eyes and smiled at her and that was the first contact and you know for her this was the most deep teaching about a listening and a friendliness with her own inner life and then being able to be available and present for quite a profound kind of connection with another being so much of the metta or loving kindness practice originates in this willingness to be with our life with our inner life in a kind of caring and listening way when we are we start letting go of our conditionality around how we love the world it's impossible to be genuinely maturely in love with X but not Y with this person but not those people are this part of yourself and not the rest this is called the book of Mirdad whom or what is one to love is one to choose a certain leaf upon the tree of life and pour upon it all one's heart what of the branch that bears the leaf and what of the stem that holds the branch what of the bark that shields the stem what of the roots that feed the 
blossoms and the, the roots and what of the sun and the sea and the air that fertilizes the soil. If one small leaf upon the tree be worthy of your love, know this as belonging to the tree in its entirety, the love that confines itself to a fraction of the whole for dooms itself to grief. You are the tree of life. Beware of fractioning yourself. Set not a fruit against a fruit, a leaf against a leaf, a bough against a bough, nor set the stem against the roots, nor set the tree against the mother's soil. That is precisely what you do when you love one part to the exclusion of the rest. So we begin this path of metta with the particulars and with the wisdom that knows our path is inclusion. To exclude is to shut our heart, to not really be able to love. And it's our nature, it's our awakened nature to love in a wholehearted way. So to talk a bit about two facets or two ways that we come home to this original face of our being, um, the naturally open and loving quality of heart. And the two ways I'll kind of divide this talk, uh, the first part is really how we come home to loving by paying attention to the shadow of loving, where we're contracted that it presents itself all the time. We have this longing for love and we have a million ways through our day that we contract. And it's almost by really being willing to pay attention to the shadow that we come back to its source, the place that longs for love and knows love. That's part one. Part two is really what are the direct ways that we can cultivate this capacity to care. And there are a number of very powerful uh, practices. So part one, the shadow, has to do with feeling we're separate. It always comes down to that, that in some deep down way we feel disconnected from the rest. Out of a feeling of separateness, we become fair-weather friends to ourselves and to our lives, very conditional. I've mentioned a number of times here the kind of the metaphor of being like an ice cube that we're frozen or tight and when we are we have these edges and with some people our edges fit okay and those people make us feel good about ourselves and we are therefore drawn to and liking those people and with others the edges collide and crash and crunch and don't feel good. So we reject those people. And it's natural. It's natural to contract and it's natural to like where we fit well and not like where we don't. And to not challenge that, to keep on habitually living inside those likes and dislikes keeps our heart bound. When we operate off of feeling separate, which most of us do most of the time, we become susceptible to feeling left out in situations. There's kind of an underlying sense of, well, here I am at this class, but I don't 
quite belong. I'm not really a, a, a member or a central part. Or here I am at this party, but I'm a bit of an outsider. And it, it ranges from that to feeling really, I'm an alien. I am from another planet. <laughs> Just don't fit in here. And it's so interesting to me that I'll talk to people about experiences they have, you know, at certain social occasions. And a large percent will report feeling like an outsider. That means that when we're all gathered together, there's always a lot of us feeling like outsiders. So we have something in common, you know, (laughs) connects us in a way. This feeling of being alien. This is Rita Rudner. Some of you might know her. When I was a girl, I only had two friends, and they were imaginary, and they would only play with each other. So a mild form of feeling separate is to feel left out. It can be very severe to feel really rejected and alien. And then out of that, there's judging. We judge or blame either ourself, I'm inadequate, insufficient, rejectable, or we blame outward. We, in some way, point the finger at another and try to get rid of them in some way from our heart and our life. Again, Rita Rudner, who has a way with words. My grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. (laughs) When we're operating off of this sense of being separate, there's a baseline of insecurity and there's always something wrong with ourselves or with a relationship. There's an undercurrent of something is wrong. That's almost the the cry of the shadow side. Things are not right. And out of that, we do what I just described. We either try to get rid of what's wrong, we judge it, we feel bad about it, or we numb out. And this is a big one. Um, We all long for love, and yet we don't go through the day thinking, oh, I wish there was more love in my life all the time. Some of us do sometimes. But we kind of numb it out. We numb out the longing and numb out the angst about our feelings of distances with people. This is Chogyam Trungpa. We think we have quieted our fear, our hurt, our longing for awakened loving, but we are actually making ourselves numb with fear. It's too dangerous to feel it. So we surround ourselves with our own familiar thoughts, familiar activities. We deaden our heart. And this is prevalent in the culture, this deadening of these longings because they're too dangerous. We feel too vulnerable. Wanting more intimacy puts us out there. Familiar thoughts, familiar activities, and you can see it. We can see it when we cross paths with each other and with so many beings in our life, how there's this kind of persona or this... um, costume we put on which has a habitual polite way of being and we say some of the same things and we have the same thoughts and the same responses and it's not so common that we drop into real spontaneity or a real sense of caring or a real sense of joy in another person's joy or sadness in another person's sorrow that level of authenticity does not happen so much 
There was an article in um, a newspaper in New York, and this guy there runs a service. And if you send him your travel itinerary, he'll send you all the postcards from the stops you're about to make. He'll send them home to you so you can write and send your postcards before you leave. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really good. I mean, you know we have all these obligations in our life and how can we be wholehearted about all of them? (laughs) But I was thinking of that tonight and the reason I included it is because right before I came here I'd gotten a call from my mother saying um, my aunt had sent a present to my son and hadn't heard from us and did he ever get it, you know, that kind of thing. So I was quickly scribbling off this, hey, how have you been thinking of you in the new year? Thanks so much for the subscription. And then I went, whoa, you know, here's a being who I care about, but is, you know, just this, I was just going through the motions. And I felt particularly hypocritical because I was about to come in and talk about going through the motions. So I sat and did a little metta meditation and really invoked her presence. But it was so cool because for about a minute, there was a quality of sincerity that I wouldn't normally touch if I'm just going through the motions or get near to touching. It's not so common that we drop into that. And for me, in those occasions, I do a lot of things habitually. And what if even a bit of that, for any of us, was infused with more intentionality, more presence? More of our life is wholehearted then. We all have this longing, but as I described, it's too dangerous. So we disconnect some from our own longings and we disconnect from others wherever it feels dangerous. And uh, this is particularly true if we've been abused. The more that we've been stung, the more dangerous it is to want to reach out or take the chance of reaching out. Every one of us needed love and needed understanding as a uh, a nurturing environment to grow up in. And, and most of us went without at least some of that. So to that extent, we cover up the wounds and we pretend to the world because it's dangerous. I love the way Emily Dickinson describes this. There is a pain so utter it swallows beings up, then covers the abyss with a trance so memory can step around, across, upon it. We all have to, at times, cover up what's more painful or too painful to handle. And to the extent that we cover up, we have to present to the world our cover. So that creates a sense of being inauthentic, not real. And it's impossible to connect, to feel intimate, when there's a feeling of being insincere. It presents, it presents us with this basic not-okay feeling, which, um, as many of you have heard me talking about more and more, is really shame. It's this basic sense that we're covering up a not-okay self, and to be exposed is, in a way, more painful than death. It's a relational death. People will see, and we will not be received well. So. We'll begin uh, with a a short exercise as a way of having you be able to relate to this in your own lives, sitting up if you will.
The theme of this exercise is how much our need to be okay affects our capacity to connect. And I'd like to invite you to pick some current relationship that you're in with friend, with child, with lover, where you wish for more intimacy, more closeness. And where there's something that challenges it, that you're aware of, something that's making it difficult. So bring up the person to mind. It doesn't have to be a traumatizing, uh, you know, a situation that's really, really painful. Just one where you'd like more closeness, but you're a bit stuck. Asking yourself, how are you afraid you'll be seen by the other or by yourself? If you got closer, if you spent more time, if you opened, or even currently, how are you afraid you are seen by the other? Since the images or the persona that's invoked, what's the persona that presents itself in relationship with this person? What are the feelings? I'm afraid I'll look like this kind of person, be interpreted that way. Continuing the inquiry, asking yourself, how is it you'd like to be seen? How do you wish this person would perceive you or that you could perceive yourself in this relationship? Sense how it feels to acknowledge both of these two identities, what you're afraid of, how you're afraid of being perceived, and how you'd like to be seen. Sense (coughs) if any feeling comes up as you hold both of these identities in awareness. For some there may not be two, but see. See if you can let the feeling be there right now, whatever it is, around holding both.
Okay, come on back, opening your eyes. Look around a little, get yourself back here. What did you notice? This is open to anyone. What did you notice when you kind of checked that out internally? If anyone's willing to say. The whole idea of moving closer to somebody just set off fear. So there was no way to even say, "What am I afraid that I'll how I'll be to that person?" You couldn't even get into that. I would go a little into that, and mm-hmm. you would kind of explode in fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't, my mind didn't so here's one very real response. As soon as we begin to face the possibility of moving closer, what leaps up? Fear. And, and sometimes it's big enough that there's not even a way to explore, well, what am I afraid of? Because it's just your body's experiencing that affect. And that's a very real response. So then the question that would come up for me, for you, would be, what next? If that's what comes up for you, then what? What do you experience next? Do you? So, this is. Um, I don't know how many of you were here last week, but this is a description of really the the forces that have been described in every tradition of when one thing happens, fear, and then when we're aware, oh, I'm so gripped by fear, then there's this grief about it, this sadness that spending these moments of our life bound by fear that gets in the way, and then then it turns from fear to more of a sense of grief or sadness, and then that sadness can leave us feeling lonely, and then lonely shut off, and then on and on. And I appreciate you naming it because when we talk about facing the shadow side of loving, this is exactly what we're talking about. Asking the question or looking inside and then being with the unlayering, even when it leaves us, the last place you've been is lonely, cut off. Then it's, okay, being with lonely, being with cut off. What's this feel like? Can you stay with? And that's what compassion means. Yet that, that feeling of loneliness, and it's not a question for you because I know you do stay with things, but um, that's the way it goes. It unfolds itself and our challenge and our path to freedom is to be with whatever next layer presents itself with as much kindness as possible. So, so thank you, Gretchen. Yeah.
so what Marilyn's describing, which is so true, that when we look closely at intimacy with another person and what stops us, it ends up being the same fears as what stops us from being connected, wholeheartedly embracing our inner life. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else want to share anything so far? Yeah, please. Yeah. That is the nature of the universe, (laughs) wanting what we don't have. But could you all hear that? That the fear, the fear when, when the question was that Gretchen said, well, what do I, you know, what am I afraid this person's going to be thinking of me was that I'm, you know, judging that in some way I'm not accepting all of him. And her want, what did she want him to be perceiving? That I'm fully embracing who he is. And a lot of us have experienced that. We know that we carry judgment and, and fear and blame in us, and yet we want other people to feel that we're trustworthy and embracing, and they both coexist. And so what happened when, they, when you just were with the fact that both of those existed in you? Was it confusing or enlightening or what? So you're completely on the right path, though. If we sense there's a difference between how we want to be seen and how we're, what we're afraid of being seen, just to hold them both is true. You're afraid of something and you want something, and you're allowed to be afraid of something and you're allowed to want something. It's, it doesn't have to violate each other. You're, if you can get big enough to make room for them both, you actually are then big enough to connect more deeply with this person. This is an exercise in opening to paradox, that there's different parts of ourselves, and it's okay. Anyone else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as I lean forward, I topple over. Mm-hmm. So that's the contact in, 
Uh-huh. So this is again, this is a, a different but very natural kind of model that, that in trying to be more connected with somebody else, you lose a sense of connectedness with yourself. And that would bring up the question to me, what is your intention in being connected with this person? Is it to complete yourself or to get away from yourself or to feel better about yourself? Because frequently when we feel that we've disconnected with a part of ourself in connecting with another, it's because the connection with another person came from wanting to get away from ourselves or not liking ourselves. So it's just something to explore. Yeah. Yeah. So so the revelation was that what you didn't want one person to see in her was what you don't want anyone to see in you. Right. And many of us have that, that when we look close up to any one relationship, let's say what we'll see is, I don't want this person to see how needy I am. Right? Because that's a big one. I know that one. And if we look around anywhere that we get close, we don't want anyone to see that. So what is it we do want them to see? That we're this, you know, open, loving, full, whole, together, you know, enlightened being, you know? Now, that's not so common, so we're going to be stuck with the paradox. Of <laughs> but that's, a, that's an important one. Yeah. If you're truly you, then what? You're unlovable. Okay, so what Monica's describing, this is kind of core level, which is that if we've been wounded in the past and we spent a lot of time trying to cover it because there's something wrong with me, then why would we want to take off that covering? If there's a feeling there's something wrong at a core level, why would we want to expose that? and get rejected. And yet, if we don't take the risk, we never feel close. Okay. Okay. Again, I want to thank you all for it. I think it takes a, a real courage to say out loud, so thank you. Um, we'll come back to this. It's, um, it's not a kind of cute psychological inquiry, this question of what are we afraid others are thinking. Um, our survival relationally has to do with how others receive us. And we all have a lot of monitoring going on about how other people are experiencing us. And we have a deep fear about it and a deep want about it. So to become awake to that level of our psyche means that we're not as controlled by it. There's more potential for freedom. So the first as I mentioned, part of um, awakening this heart-mind is to begin to notice. 
Begin to notice our patterns for what keeps us from getting close. What are the behaviors we use? Some of us um, stop from being close by grabbing on to certain people really hard, and others by keeping ourselves very independent. And you know, and others do a lot of blaming, and others. I mean, we have a million strategies, but to begin to not only recognize the strategy, but to begin to sense the deep level of wanting and fearing that drives it. To really start noticing, just as Gretchen did, she went right to it, that without even, you know, playing around with it at all, she went right to fear. There's a lot of fear that keeps our armor up, every one of us. And there's no way to wake up out of it until we can connect with it. The only way through. Now, the second thing I'd like to address is the actual practices that soften and open and deepen our capacity to connect. And I'd like to start with a poem by Rilke. For there is a boundary to looking, and the world that is looked at so deeply wants to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done. Now, go and do heart work on all the images imprisoned within you. For you overpowered them, but even now you don't know them. Learn, inner man, to look on your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. A friend of mine about 12 years ago sent me this poem and I keep pulling it out and every time I pull it out it drops deeper. It's one of, for me, one of the most important poems I have and I rarely read it. Um, In fact, this is the first time I think I've read this in a Dharma class Um, and yet it really is one of the most beautiful expressions of how we can look and look and look and look at our stuff and look at our stuff and look at our stuff But it's not until we actually embrace the energy, the images, the stories, embrace in a very immediate and intimate way what's inside us, that there's freedom. When our inner life becomes the beloved, when there's no difference. Life everywhere is the beloved, but this inner life is is experienced that way. Now, one of the beginnings, middles, and ending of all spiritual practice is establishing this intention to embrace, to care. We all long for love, we all long to be loved, and yet we don't remember that much. We disconnect, as I mentioned before. So in all spiritual traditions, this establishing aspiration, the intention to care, and I found in my own practice more and more that when I remember to just in some way say, well, may I care? <laughs> it's real simple. May I care about this moment, this life, this person? Because deep down I genuinely do care, the remembering even that I'd like to is like a way of coming closer to what's real. So it's a practice to remember, to remember that we want to love. There are workshops where we do this exercise 
that I love, I could do it, you know, every month or something, but um, where you sit in pairs and one person saying, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? And the other person's responding with each, what do you want, you say something, what do you want, respond. And you sit there for five minutes having someone say to you, what do you want, what do you want? And you just keep going deeper and deeper. And you can start off with anything from, you know, a trip to Hawaii and bagels and, you you know, let your mind go wild. But where do you end up? Most deeply, where do you end up? D.H. Lawrence writes, Humans are not free when they are doing just what they like. Humans are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And there are some getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So the practice of diving is really this way of setting our intention to keep on inquiring what really matters. And I found in my own practice that in the moment that I ask that question, you know, what really matters? Can I care about this moment? I drop to a deeper sense of sincerity. And that's become for me a word that is uh, rich with meaning because I'm aware that I can go through a lot in a habitual mode and not be outright cynical, but there's some little twist where I don't feel genuine. And um, so just asking that question, what really matters this moment? You know, what really matters? And then somewhere in me, it's to care, to be connected, you know, whatever the particular language of the moment is. And there's an instantaneous sense of being more real, more alive, and more living the practice. So we begin by setting that intention to open our hearts in some way. And out of that intention comes paying attention, paying attention to the people in our life. Krishnamurti writes, we pay attention because we care, which means we really love. And each of us knows what it's like when we're in the presence of somebody that's really paying attention to us. First, we know that this is not so common. And second, we know that if we're able to let it in, it's the only way we can feel cared about and trust it when somebody really pays attention without an agenda, just there. When we really attend to life, life within us, the life in each other, we get involved. That's the beginning of communion. I remember when my son was about six or seven, we gave him one of those ant farms that most kids get at some point. And um, he was mesmerized. I mean, he just watched every tunnel and was very excited when new little connections would be made and got to know the ants quite personally, you know. he, He loved it. And he'd go to, I think he was either in kindergarten or first grade, and I remember him coming home from school enormously distressed because other kids were stepping on uh, little creatures in the play yard. And it was like, it, it, he really got it, like that this was a life form. He really registered because he had paid sustained attention. I don't think we could kill each other if we really paid attention to each other. I mean, if, if there's somebody in the on, on the other side, on the enemy side, and by some miracle, you could just kind of pause everything and just watch them in their life close up 
for a while, there becomes this connection that makes it impossible to feel animosity. That's the power of paying attention. It begins with paying attention to our own bodies and hearts. If we're not able to listen to what's going on inside us, we're not going to be able to put it all down and, and be there for another being. This is a description that an athlete wrote. I used to overtrain because doing a lot made me feel like I was achieving something. It seems good to grind out the repetitions, but actually it's just lazy. It's much harder to notice just what my body needs, how I'm breathing, but I do that now and I never get injured anymore. There's so many ways that we are violent to ourselves by not listening to when we need to sleep or when we need to hug someone or when we need to be out in the wilderness or when we need just to stop. But we override it with this anxiety about getting things done, about being worthwhile, so we don't listen. So that's the second part. First we set this intention to open our hearts, to care, and then we pay attention to the life within, to the life around us. The third part is that we have such a conditioning when we're with the world and with ourselves to judge that there's an incredibly beautiful practice of looking to appreciate, having this intention and this receptivity to appreciate what's beautiful. More and more people tell me, and this is kind of a spreading practice because you kind of arrive on it quite organically, of the sweetness of at the end of a day or frequently, just to review what we're grateful for. What is it about this life or about the beings in our life that we cherish? And it's a really high exercise, you know? And it becomes sweet because there's probably no more wonderful experience in the world than living in a place of gratitude or appreciation. It feels fabulous. But it's something that we're conditioned not to do. We're conditioned to complain, so it takes some intention. It's a beautiful practice. And um, with that in mind, we'll do a little. (laughs) So if you will, to come sitting up again. There's no way to do a class in loving-kindness that's not hands-on. It's only so many words. Choose someone, if you will, that's close to you. This is just in your own mind. (laughs) This is not turning. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Next week. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, within your own being. Choose someone that's a dear being and take some time to evoke their presence in your awareness seeing an image of them and sensing what they're like sensing a bunch about them some of their habits this person's habits the way they move how they speak, 
and include in your reflection your sense of their imperfections, what bothers you. This is being honest, to sense what bothers you. what you're most inclined to judge or blame them for. And sense how the feeling bothered manifests for you. You know, when when you're inside feeling annoyed or bothered by them, judging what it's like. And you can imagine that there's a room and if you were in the middle of the room, when you're feeling bothered or judging or blaming them, where do you want to place them in the room? how close or how far away. Taking a full breath, inhale and exhale. Good. And then reflect on now what you deeply appreciate. What is it that you love about this being? And as you did earlier, let yourself feel in your body what it's like to appreciate this person. sense if you were in the middle of a room where you'd want them to be. And now sensing an openness of awareness, see what happens when you let both arenas be true, both their imperfectness and what you cherish. Be with both and sense what that's like. and coming back. Okay. We'll take some a few moments at the end if anyone would like to comment on that, but for now just to uh, read you from Jose Ortega. Tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. Our path is not to uh, bury or deny or pretend that we or others are uh, not imperfect. But it's also to train this possibility of being able to see in a big way the big picture and discover that we have room. We have room to see and look and notice the goodness and the godliness and the beauty and the Buddha nature and hold the imperfections in a way that doesn't push anyone out of our hearts. So these are the grounds 
this uh, setting of intention, this paying attention, this seeing what's true, for being love, for experiencing love. And the last part of what I'd like to talk about are the practices that are a more active expression. Because in all spiritual paths, there's the cultivating this receptivity, this ability to see and notice and receive, and then the active expression of loving. Our practice of expression of love is in whatever we do. We express love with our words and with our images and with our prayers and with our touch and with our actions, with our giving, with our healing. Thich Nhat Hanh writes that when you say something like, I love you, our beloved one, with your whole being, not just with your mouth or your intellect, it can transform the world. A statement that has such power of transformation is called a mantra. Or an image that we create that's a loving image is a sacred image. Or a touch that's wholehearted is a healing touch. When we give from our heart, it's a true gift. I love his description because we all love but we don't all put our whole being into it and that's where it becomes a practice to really give ourselves so that when we say, I love you, there's a heart and a body and an awareness that's fully there behind those words. So the metta or loving kindness practice is any way that we extend our care. Most of you or many are familiar with the classical metta practice of offering phrases, and that's one of 10,000 practices because it's as creative as each of us in our own lives finding ways to express love. But it's useful to have a kind of a common denominator when we're all together. So using phrases can be quite beautiful. And when we do it, we extend the phrases to ourselves and then each other, wishing for happiness, wishing for healing. Um, that our intent is just to do it from as sincere a place as possible. I'd like to read you from Stephen Levine. This is something I shared on the day long that I think is um, quite, quite beautiful. What I mean by love is not an emotion. It is a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and other and anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. It is not a dualistic emotion. It is a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It is a feeling of unity. You don't love another, you are another. There is no fear because there is no separation. Now in this practice of metta, it seems dualistic because we're sending messages of care to our own being, to others. Who's sending them? Who's receiving them? 
But the given is we all have the conditioning to feel separate and to feel fear, every one of us. So we need a stepping stone. And it's by practicing this expression of care, even though we frame it that we're sending it to someone else, that we actually become care, open and become love. So it's a very powerful and beautiful part of the Buddhist tradition and of all spiritual traditions I know to use this uh, sending of prayer or care as a way of opening to that being state. So I'd like to close tonight with a little metta meditation, if you will, just coming up for a last time sitting tall. And we'll begin just posing the question to your own heart of what matters, sensing your aspiration. And paying attention to the inner life to start the sensations in your body, the emotions in your heart. And in a broader way, a reflection on your being as you move through this life, what you appreciate, what you can honor. It takes a certain courage to look and see the good, to see the Buddha nature, to bow to these awakening hearts and minds. Sensing your own goodness and sincerity and beauty and offering whatever wish or prayer of care that you'd like to, to your own being. offering wholeheartedly your prayer to your own being. And if you'd like to include with that a light touch, the heart or wherever, just as a gesture of extending care within, it can be quite beautiful holding yourself in any way. Taking a deep breath now. And bringing to mind someone that you'd like to offer your loving kindness to. Bringing that person to mind and sensing what you appreciate, what you love about them.
offering your prayer. With words, with energy, with imagery, offering your prayer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.